Schneider from Evanston, Illinois. This is Bruce Dumont with our Beyond the Beltway analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of rumor and innuendo all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight featured commentary by moderate Republican David Cohen, progressive writer David Masiotra, conservative financial advisor Kenton McCarthy, Abby Liebman, president and CEO of Mazan, and that will be looking at hunger in America, Dr. Sylvia Gates Carlisle will be talking about the disparity between blacks and whites in the COVID virus death count. And also, we'll hear from landlord Lee Wang, who will join us to talk about whether people are not people are paying their rent or not. Uh, 1-800-723-8289 is the phone number. Thanks very much for being with us. We've got another full two hours. In the first hour this evening, we'll have three guests on at the second time, second at the same time, and then in the second hour, we'll go to a series of individual interviews, and uh, we will be discussing specific elements of uh, COVID nineteen and how it is affecting a society. Uh, I want to begin uh, by asking the question: um, At this moment in time, one of the great debates in the country is whether or not the states are going to reopen or not. And again, there's been some mixed signals by the White House as to whether they should or shouldn't. But uh, I want to get your reaction. I'm going to start with you, David Cohn, because I, I, I interviewed, uh, introduced you as, as a moderate Republican. I think that's a fair assessment. What is your take on uh, whether states uh, should be uh, aggressive or passive in opening up their states? Well, Bruce, first of all, thanks for the invitation to come back on Beyond the Beltway. It's always a pleasure to be with you and to talk about these Great. issues. To speak to your question, uh, this to me is the genius of our federalist system. We have 50 states, each of which are assessing the public health needs and the status of their recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic. What we see happening now is the states, as the laboratories of democracy, uh, really trying to figure it out. And and what might work correctly for Illinois may not be the same thing uh, as for South Dakota or for Wyoming or for Florida, for that matter. So it seems to me that the states need to take, and the governors are taking, uh, the appropriate leadership role here in determining how to safely reopen their states. David, do you see it that way? David Masiotra, our progressive? Well, it's perhaps uh, pleasurable to some that we, in these hostile, partisan times, uh, begin on a note of agreement. Uh, we are seeing the strength of our federalist system throughout this pandemic because as the response from the federal government has been largely incoherent, uh, many governors of both parties have uh, risen to the occasion with intelligence and discipline. I would note, however, that we have to proceed with caution with these calls to reopen everything. Uh, the American Enterprise Institute, uh, certainly not a Marxist outfit, mm-hmm. uh, issued in its paper on the issue that one of the key factors is that hospitals can go back to standard capacity of care. Right. And I have a friend who's an ER nurse in a hospital near Chicago, and they've had to dramatically limit intake. So anything that doesn't qualify as an emergency, they send elsewhere. Let's go to, let's go to, let's go to make sure medical capacity is 
restored. David, I want to bring uh, Kenton McCarthy in. He joins us from uh, his palatial home in Arizona. Uh, <laughs> Kenton, uh, at this particular moment, where do you come down on uh, uh, who's making the right decision? And and do you think those that are opening up their states, are they're, they're doing it with some degree of respect? Well, I, I, I do give a nod to the notion of federalism, but my big change this week came from uh, an epidemiological phenomena to it's now a political event. Uh-huh. 9-11, we had about three weeks of unity yeah. between both sides. We've had zero unity. So now it's we've got political grudge matches going on in primarily Michigan, uh, a little bit here with one of our senators and our governor. So it's it's a political exercise, each and every one of them from JB all the way down to the smallest state. And it's more about November 3rd than anything else. David, do you agree with that? David Cohen. David Cohen. Which did, my, well, I, I think I do agree with that. I think it's unfortunate that when, when we have a public health crisis that requires that we do put partisanship aside and work together for the, for the good of the nation, that we've, we've created this, uh, this wedge where uh, people have to pick a side. Do you want to open up the country and the economy or do you want to save lives? And, you know, you're, it, no matter which position you take up, those on the other side are going to v- be vilified. That's absolutely ridiculous. Um, but, do, but do you think, and David Massiotra to you for this one, do you believe, though, that in the first several weeks, there was, a, there were, there was the, the voice of Dr. Fauci, there was the voice of Dr. Burks, and now you have... Uh, different different governors. I know Governor Pritzker in Illinois introduced his his advisory team. Are we and also every network is coming up with their with their uh, scientific and medical experts. Are we getting to the point where we're getting too many opinions out there and it's it's confusing the people? I mean, they may not be involved in a political way, but again, we have conflicting information that the American people are digesting. Yeah, if if we run a quick compare and contrast to other countries. Uh, typically the only people going on record, not exclusively, but generally, are the ministers of health. Uh, Canada, Greece, Germany, various other countries, they've delegated the responsibility of public communication to whoever is in charge, respectively, of public health for those countries. I would also remind everyone, however, that acid rain comes from the top, not the bottom. And before we even had one coronavirus infection in the United States, the president of the United States was accusing Democrats who were expressing concern over it as perpetuating a hoax. So that got us off on the wrong foot when it comes to unity and agreement and cooperation. Well, but what, again, what in, this, got, in this, in this, go ahead, Kenton. You wanted to follow up. What What else got us off the wrong on the wrong foot was when you had Dr. Tedros in early March saying the stigma from this virus is more damaging than the virus itself. Yeah. That doesn't help the science along. Yeah. This is the World and Health we, Organization you're talking about. Correct. The WHO head, uh, the Marxist from Ethiopia. So. We've so the, the 30 million people that have now been put out of work. Here's what they see they see almost a fetish, fetishization of fear and doom from their politicians to justify a brutal, blunt tyranny of lockdowns. And they see at the same time, they're seeing this whole Fauci, Hermes, Gates medical complex fail in all its estimates. 
So okay. we've gone from two plus million gloom and doom now down to we're at 50K. And at some point, these people whose lives are ruined are going to go, wait a minute. At what point do we get back to something approaching normal? So you believe, you believe, Kenton, that it is correct that more and more Americans are beginning to question some of the the models oh, yeah, that absolutely. were promoted absolutely. by uh, by the government. Ab- absolutely, and that's why you see pro- protests bubbling up in state capitals throughout the country. David Cohen, right. a quick answer, a response to you. We've got 10 seconds. Go ahead. Okay. Just quickly, we need to have a more extended conversation about the, the role that science and rational thought should have in this nation. We have abandoned it to our peril. So okay. you want to go to your break? or I want to go need? to my break, and I want to come back with David Masiotra. I'm Bruce Dumont from coast to coast and border to border in our 39th year. It's got a little bit different uh, look than in the past, but... We'll be back shortly from Evanston, Illinois. This message is from the National Council on Aging. Adults over age 60 are at higher risk for the COVID-19 coronavirus because they may have weaker immune systems or chronic health conditions. The Centers for Disease Control recommends older adults avoid crowds and people who are sick. Wash your hands and disinfect surfaces often. Keep a two-week supply of food and medicine on hand. Learn more at ncoa.org. A few years ago, Steve Faircow's lungs were failing. I don't think I had more than a couple weeks to live. That's when Steve received a lung transplant made possible by an organ donor. Now Steve can do things he never imagined, like climbing 94 floors to the top of a skyscraper. I never knew that breathing could feel this good. It's an incredible gift. What could you make possible as an organ, eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Bruce Dumont in Evanston, Illinois. We continue with Beyond the Beltway. And David Masiotra, let me uh, go back to you and uh, talk about uh, about the models and uh, the conflicting uh, reports we are getting from uh, from the experts. Well, models are destined to uh, commit errors, to be erroneous. I mean, that's just... Uh, part of the game, but uh, David Cohn, my fellow guest, made an outstanding point that we really have to make our focus uh, in that we have to, in this country, get away from what Richard Hofstadter, Pulitzer Prize-winning historian in 1961, called Mm -hmm. anti-intellectualism. If there was ever a time to put more faith and confidence in science and expertise, it's right now. It's just like when you're personally sick, you go to the doctor. Uh, now our country, our world is sick. Let's go to the doctor. Okay, the all right. But, well, but I, I, David, I can, uh, I can da- let me just follow up with that, and then I'll go to you, David uh, uh, Cohen. We, we've got a, we've got our, we got our video feed mixed up uh, on the screen right now. We got the two Davids in the wrong spot. But let me just make this point. Uh, I agree with you. But, you know, when we've been listening and we've been hearing from Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks for a long time, uh, just on the issue of just on the issue of testing and whether or not we're ready for testing, there appears to be some disagreement there. And then today they uh, on, on one of the shows, they had a, a medical expert uh, from uh, Minnesota that was on. And he basically was he was questioning uh, Dr. Burks as to whether or not uh, her interpretation was correct. So, you know, it's good to listen to the science and listen to, as we say, the more educated people. But, you know, when they start to disagree in public, 
uh, where, do, where do the rest of us go? Let, let me go back to you, uh, David Cohn, to, to kind of sort that out. And then I want to hear uh, uh, Kenton to weigh in on it. Oh, well, thanks. Well, I was, the broader point I was making is, you know, I, I'm the moderate Republican here. I, I worked for Congressman John Porter, who spent the better part or the latter half of his career chairing the Labor HHS and Education uh-huh. Subcommittee. And his, his goal was to double the research budget for the National Institutes of Health. He got that done. Um, but that was during a time in this country when, when science and rational analysis and logic was a respect. Those were respected values. I think over the last uh, at least couple of decades, didn't start with President Trump, but it's been accelerated during his administration. We have this notion that's been planted that somehow scientific uh, learning and scientific uh, opinion is just as, you know, anybody's opinion is just as good as, as those medical experts. It's not. Um, we need to get back. I'm not saying that politics and governmental policy should be driven solely by scientific edict, but we have to remember that these people have spent a lifetime gaining knowledge as to how to understand and combat these kinds of crises. If we're not listening to them, we're making a mistake. Yeah, but some people w- would be in the public would say, okay, where were these people and what were they saying three or four months ago? I mean, why did they, why did they miss the boat on this? Now, some would argue that they didn't miss the boat, but there's a lot of people listening to this program this evening. You know, they like smart people. But right. if smart people are miss the boat on things, they they start to think twice about how smart they really are. Well, I, I think, well, I think that, you know Fauci and Burks and others. I think that the entire world scientific community was working on the information available at the time, and there were fairly early indications that there was some human to human transmission. When that became clear, I think that the scientific world pretty much fell into lockstep on what we know about it. I want to go so, back to Kenton McCarthy because Kenton, you've spent a lot of a lot of your uh, life in the last 10 years dealing with medical issues and doctors. So I'm going to give you the final word on the on at least the the medical discussion we have this evening. <laughs> the, the final, here's my uh, here's my final word. This could be my combustible comments of the week. <laughs> uh, pandemics are much too serious a matter to be entrusted to doctors. You remember a few years ago when everyone started to use the words, my truth. Well, my truth, I believe in this. It's become my science. And what I've seen, especially in my state, is the use of selective science to justify a political agenda. And if you're you're beaten down, if you disagree with that selective science chosen, so you get these scientists don't agree on everything. If you have well, I think one ha- thing one thing that that was very clear today, and I want to get David Masiotra uh, and his opinion on this first. And I don't know whether he watched some of the Sunday morning shows today, but it was apparent to me that the the moderators on some of these shows they really wanted their medical guest to criticize Doctor Burks. And basically embarrass her. It's 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 when I was watching Meet the Press, it was like they were trying to get her and humiliate her so she would resign, because how dare she not stand up when the president made his goofball comment about you know about Lysol? Uh, how dare she not stand up and storm out of the room? But that's the pressure that I I think is building. Do you, do you share that? That's something that's out there. Well. Uh, Dr. Burks might feel that she's one of the few firefighters holding a hose trying yeah. to put out a burning building. However, I would affirm the thought of some who, when the President of the United States, despite his title, despite his authority, 
makes a suggestion that is certifiably insane and could very well endanger people, she should stand up and object. She took a Hippocratic oath after all. And and Bruce, I, I need to add one last thing to this. And, and I want to agree, you know, Kenton raises the point about the economic devastation that has occurred as a result of the lockdowns and the stay-at-home orders. There's no denying that. But I, and I think that, first of all, I want to make two points. One is that it's a false choice that we can have economic liberty or you know, uh, reasonable public health measures to combat the pandemic. We can do both at the same time. But secondly, in regard to the shutdowns and the stay-at-home orders that we've seen debated all over this country and that we continue to debate, I think there are three things that we need to remember about the coronavirus that are different from past pandemics. Number one is the asymptomatic transmission. We don't see that in other pandemics or annual flu epidemics in this country. So there are people walking around potentially who are carriers who don't know it. Number two, the science is out and the jury is out on whether if you have antibodies in your system, that you've had COVID-19 and recovered, does that confer any immunity to you? And if so, for how long? That has not been established. And number three, as Dr. Fauci pointed out, there's a missing piece here. We have large numbers of people, young and who are otherwise not in clear risk categories, who contract COVID-19, very quickly succumb, go on a respirator and die, a ventilator and die. And Fauci says there's something else going on here that we don't understand. So that's the uncertainty that has led to a lot of what, what you might characterize as an overreaction, but I think was done with an abundance of care to see if we don't know what's going on, we need to do everything we can to protect people. What is just, the I, impact? I, my, Go my, ahead. My opinion, Bruce, is Go ahead, Kenton. This, this economy was not designed with a pause button. I told you weeks ago that society and economies rely on these complex systems to interact and overlap. Mm -hmm. When we shut one down, we can't expect it to stay idle. So you now have 30 million new people unemployed. You have a broken oil and gas industry. You have an ag system that is breaking. And when we see more pork plants shut down and you now have a food supply issue and that supply chain gets disrupted, We'll, we'll dream of a toilet paper run at Home Depot because when we can't find meat on our shelves, we're going to be going, why did we destroy these supply chains and these systems just for X, Y, or Z patients? Do you yeah. think that if, uh, do you think we're at a point now where there will be enough governors that will try things? I mean, uh, and, and they will be measured by how many people die. They won't be measured by how many businesses they save, how many people they send back to work out of the 27 million that are on unemployment at the moment. They will be judged. Brian Kemp in, in Georgia is going to be judged on one thing. How many people die? Yes. Because, you yes, know, every member of the national that is, media that is, more is focused that, that on is more people in Georgia. Than saving someone's livelihood. Well, it, you know what? That, that should be. That should be the measurement. I mean, opening up tattoo parlors, beauty salons. That is grotesquely irresponsible. And I would ask uh, Kenton, with all due respect, how many people should we be willing to sacrifice? I, I, uh, with all due respect, I'd love to have that conversation. It, it wouldn't be one. If, if you took the 30 million people who are now out of work and may have their lives and careers destroyed, and you ask them, you say, go take a vote on how many deaths you would be okay with to have your life ruined. Well, you know, 1,000, 5,000, 10,000, 100,000, 
we this country manages and weighs risks on a daily basis. We can manage this risk. Well, as far as the media focus on this, I think you're correct that the media are looking at Georgia, for example, anticipating that this is going to create some kind of resurgence of the virus. We're going to know in two weeks. Uh, the, the, the incubation period, whether be, because it seems to me with the amount of media scrutiny that's being paid to Georgia right now, if we get past the two week period and we don't have a dramatic increase in cases or deaths and the economy starts to work there, that story needs to be told. Um, okay, what's, but, what's will, the other but, side? But, but here's my point: will will it be told? We're we're now getting into oh, into the role yes. of media because uh, because that's, right at the moment, right at the moment, everyone I think everyone in the national media. I think they're rooting for Brian Kemp uh, to to have made a huge mistake, and I think they their case would be made stronger if people started dying in Georgia of of this. They want yes. to punish him. I totally agree. Yeah, I yeah. totally agree. Yeah, but I think we also have to we also have to take into account that the other side of that story, if infection rates skyrocket, if the death rate dramatically escalates. People are going to panic. That's going to create chaos. And then you're going to have economic devastation that's uncontrolled, which is worse. Uh, I, I, I agree that, that we're going to know that in a couple of weeks. And I don't think I would disagree with you how uh, people are going to react to it. But uh, again, it's, uh, you know, as, as, as we know, I mean, if you're the governor and you can make these decisions, even though the president may slap you on the back one day and kick you in the butt the next, you got to make that decision. And so uh, the eyes of the world are on Georgia. Back shortly. Hi, this is Dr. Phil. The new coronavirus called COVID-19 is spreading in China and beyond. While CDC is working to stop the spread of the virus, we can all play a role in stopping this deadly disease. The CDC Foundation is a nonprofit organization supporting emergency response efforts in the United States and around the world. To get updates and learn how to protect friends and loved ones, find out how to help by going to cdcfoundation.org. Chris Domine is a husband, father, an athlete, even an Iron Man. But 10 years ago, Chris's kidneys were failing. The doctor said, if you don't get a kidney transplant, you are going to die. Chris received a second chance, made possible by an organ donor. Your well-being changes from loss of hope to better times ahead. What could you make possible as an organ, eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Rooster went back uh, from beautiful Evanston, Illinois. This is our uh, new home at the uh, studios of WCGO in Evanston, Illinois, where my radio career began uh, many, many years ago, back in 1973, in this very studio. So whenever I come back to do this, uh, play the show from here, it brings back lots of uh, fond memories. At this Uh, moment, I'd like to introduce our guests for this evening, or better yet, have them Take 15 seconds to introduce themselves, and we're going to begin with our progressive tonight, David Masiotra. David, go ahead. David Masiotra, it's always a pleasure to be on Beyond the Beltway, a show for intelligent and balanced dialogue. I'm a political columnist with Salon and author of five books, including the forthcoming I Am Somebody, Why Jesse Jackson Matters. Okay. David Cohen joins us also. I described him as a moderate Republican. What do you do during uh, the regular week, uh, David? 
Oh, thanks, Bruce. Uh, again, pleasure to be on the show. My full-time job uh, at, at right now is uh, I'm the executive director of public affairs at the Union League Club of Chicago. Been there for 15 years. And prior to that, my adult career was primarily in government and public policy. Uh, I spent uh, many years as press secretary for former Congressman John Porter, represented Illinois' 10th district. Uh, and um, that was the guy who chaired that uh, subcommittee that funded NIH I talked about. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when uh, Congressman Porter retired, I uh, fell into a similar role working for Lieutenant Governor Corinne Wood. Illinois, I was director of communications for Lieutenant Governor Wood. So okay. I'm, I'm the Illinois. last of the vanishing, the vanishing breed of moderate Republican. Okay. <laughs> Captain McCarthy, you're a card-carrying conservative and uh, uh, came with your birthright. So tell us a little, <laughs> little bit about your background. Well, as I've stated before, I grew up in DuPage County, so uh, pretty much steeped. My my household was all about either jazz or politics. Mm -hmm. So I know your background music, Tom Scott, very well. Very good. Okay. Uh, been in investment banking for 25 years. I'm currently, I started my own consulting firm where I help cities and towns manage their portfolios. So I'm seeing firsthand the devastation caused by this economic collapse, the, the destruction, this whole panic. I look at it from, I can see the virus perspective, but the man-made, the, the suicide component is what scares me the most. It's almost as if we fought World War III with China and only one shot was fired, and that was us putting a gun to our own head. You've got you've got such devastation out there. It's, it's, it is tragic and it's bigger than most people realize. As, as the debate grows, one of the, one of the next debates that's going on in Congress is when the next uh, package is, is, is a stimulus package is passed. How much of that is going to go to the States? Cause the States want a large sum of money, $500 billion to divvy up amongst the States and Mitch McConnell says, "No, I don't like that idea. Let, you know, let them go for, uh, uh, let, let them file for bankruptcy." But again, would you acknowledge? And you're the you're the conservative on the panel at the moment, uh, uh, Kenton. Would you say that uh, that any a portion of that should go to states? I mean, aren't states I, I, having I problems think, too? I, I think some of it will, if if you can trace the impact back to the panic that ensued. But you've got a you got a big question because I've said on this show for many years, Illinois and Chicago are technically bankrupt. They just don't dare admit it. So why would why should the Fed print money to bail out Illinois and Chicago for past excesses, corruption, and mismanagement? That's the question you, that's gonna it's gonna come up, and it has to be answered. David Cohn, you spent a lot of uh, time uh, around Washington, D.C. Uh, take us inside the, that debate that's going on, and where do you come down? Does Illinois well, and do other states that have been poorly managed, should they get a piece of taxpayer dollars now since uh, the government seems to be uh, in the business of throwing money out? Well, first of all, let, let's make a distinction between funding for states to offset expenses and, and responses to the coronavirus crisis from pre-existing pension problems such as we have here in Illinois. Right. So that's why I think that, uh, you know, there's been a, was a, lot of, a lot of skeptical eyes raised and request to try and help Illinois with it. I do think the federal government has a responsibility to help the states meet the 
unbelievable costs of responding to this crisis. Because I the alternative, I do not think that Senator McConnell's suggestion of bankruptcy is responsible because, number one, uh, you know, if the U.S. government allows states to default on their obligations, I think that's going to call into question the full faith and credit of the United States, which is comprised of the states. Number two, as Governor Cuomo correctly, correctly pointed out, some of the states are donor states and some of the states are recipient states. And not all the states have had the same kind of burden when it comes to the coronavirus response. So it David, I want to go. I want to. I want to go to David Massiotto. The, the the bigger, broader question here is: Should any stimulus money be made available to the states to basically catch up and to make up for inefficiencies of the running of those states for decades? Well, that's not the question on the table. Well, that's the question I just put it on the table. But that's not why the states are seeking money. It's not It's not to recoup the losses of mismanagement. It's because we're in the midst of the pandemic that Kenton rightly points out uh, has caused widespread economic devastation. But some of now, these states want more money than, than it's not just a matter of uh, reimbursing states. I, I, I agree. I think most of the listeners would agree that if you're reimbursing a state for bona fide expenditures that are tied to COVID-19, that's okay because we are all in it together. But mm-hmm. once once a government starts to ask for more money than that figure, then it looks to me like they're trying to, you know, they're they're trying to add some uh, uh you know, I- improve the books and 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 make up for some past mistakes. Well, if you, if you want to merit test all of the pandemic aid I'm sure that we could reach across partisan lines and find opportunities for agreement. And the failure to merit test uh, bankrupted the small business aid program, the paycheck protection program, because we have multinational corporations uh, accessing money that was originally intended for uh, mom and pop store owners, diner owners, bar owners, and so on and so forth. So we could certainly have a conversation about how best to direct that aid so it meets the need of the most desperate and vulnerable. But I'm not sure if questioning states' legitimate need to keep their offices open, keep their state agencies running, upon which many people depend, uh, is the best place to start. Well, Bruce, let well, me just... Well, can I just... Go ahead, yes, go ahead. Go, Kenton McCarthy. Go ahead, Kenton McCarthy. Uh, we we talked about these agencies, essential services, which is terrific. I wouldn't call it a stimulus. This is this is a tiny tourniquet on massive hemorrhaging. There is no amount of money that the Federal Reserve can print out of thin air to make up for the wealth, not the income, but the wealth that's been destroyed. And here's I'm going to go back to those 30 million people that are out of work when. When they I see think it's twenty-seven million, but uh, that's the figure I heard today. But uh, if you you've what, heard of, might have heard a different tw- figure, but go 26, ahead. It's twenty-six and change headed to thirty million. Yeah, new newly out of work. Mm-hmm. So when a politician on one day says, "I'm going to make it illegal for you to go to your job to feed your kids," and then the next day tweets about how you can find your nearest food bank, that's a mixed message. That that there's too many people for the Fed to be paying all their income and all their food and all their health. The only way back to restore all this is to get an economy that's vibrant, that has a tax base, 
that pays for it all. We have Look, a we have a caller, and I want to go to the caller. Lou, go ahead. You're calling from Indiana. Go ahead. You're on Beyond the Beltway. David. Oh, yeah, yeah I'm David, uh, not Lou. And oh, I'm go ahead. out in San Francisco. Okay, yeah. well. Let's... How are you? Uh, I, I've got to disagree with uh, your guests. Slow and steady wins an epidemic. Slow and steady. Everybody has to stop moving around. Everybody has to stop hustling for a couple of weeks in order for uh, the the epidemic to slow down. Everybody. It's not, not two weeks, David. No. Oh, I know. We're and heading we into the second month. The we're waiting. We stopped February 5th, so we're going on three months. Right. And we're waiting for the fools to stop. And the fools are starting up again, and they're going to start spreading it again. So I'm tired of these fake conservatives who think that they need to get back to hustling when they never stopped hustling. And this is sickening. But the, uh, the, the good news out of San Francisco is as of yesterday, we only had 23 deaths. 23 total, not 901 day, 23 total, mm -hmm. because we stopped on February 5th, and we're waiting for you fools to stop and Let's settle go back. down. Let's go back to Kenton McCarthy, he's the conservative. If I could add one, one idea to that, uh, Americans need to get out of this provincial mindset. There's countries that are going back to work now. Because the curve is flat, <clears throat> South Korea, Vietnam, Singapore, Germany has the lowest death rate in the world. That's because they had a universal adherence to social distancing and shutdown measures. And they didn't have this portion of the population uh, rejecting it with this myopic defiance. Well, Bruce, I was going to make the point that the virus really doesn't care about geographic location or party affiliation. But to get to Kenton's point, there are thousands and untold thousands of people and businesses that are never going to come back, Republican and Democrat, have been destroyed by this thing. But I want to just make a point about the cost that we're discussing. I want you to do that, David. I want you to do that, and I want you to do it at length. We do have to come up with a commercial break right now. We'll come back to David Cohen, who will offer uh, that assessment when we continue. I'm Bruce Dumont from Coast to Coast and Border to Border on Beyond the Beltway. Every year, millions of Americans use opioids to manage pain. Pain can be unrelenting, overwhelming, and all-consuming. So why do so many of us try to manage pain only from the palm of our hands? Doctor-prescribed opioids are appropriate in some cases, but they just mask the pain. And reliance on opioids has led to the worst drug crisis in American history. That's why the CDC recommends safer alternatives, like physical therapy, to manage pain. Physical therapists treat pain through movement, hands-on care, and patient education. No warning labels required. And by increasing physical activity, you can also reduce your risk of other chronic diseases. Pain is personal, but treating pain takes teamwork. When it comes to your health, you have a choice. Choose more movement and better health. Choose physical therapy. Visit MoveForwardPT.com to find a physical therapist in your area. This message is brought to you by the American Physical Therapy Association. Bruce Dumont back on Beyond the Beltway. And uh, for those who are listening to the program on radio uh, at this moment, uh, I want to give you, uh, I want to tell you about the Beyond the Beltway with Bruce Dumont Facebook page, 
because there are many people who are watching the show right now uh, on the Facebook page of this program. But again, if you're listening uh, on radio, r- jot that down and, and go to it and ask to be a friend. I will, I will friend you. Beyond the Beltway uh, with Bruce Dumont, it's a Facebook page. Go there because not only can you see the program uh, when we do it every Sunday night, but starting next week, we're going to be doing a series of special shows during the week. We will give you advance notice, and we will be having some of the guests that uh, you have you see on this program uh, in, in group discussion or other guests who have not been on this program, and we'll be doing a series of interviews with them during the week. As the news of the week unfolds, we'll be doing special, these will be special shows just for fans of, of Beyond the Beltway, but the site to go to it is Beyond the Beltway with Bruce Dumont. That's the singular site. Look for it. It's got a picture of a microphone on it, and uh, go there, and right after the program this evening, and obviously if you're watching on that site, you already know about it, but again, this is a way for everybody who wants to have a little more Beyond the Beltway in their life during the week, uh, we'll be doing it a couple of three times a week. So go there uh, now and 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 ask to uh, to uh, befriend, uh, be a friend of Beyond the Beltway with Bruce Dumont, and I will befriend you. There we go. Uh, let's go back. David Masriotto, you were about to make a point when we had to go for a break, did you not? It was well, me. No, David Cohn. I'm sorry, David Cohn. You were going to well, talk about the money aspect of it. Right. We, we were, before the break, we were having an important conversation about the size of the COVID relief spending. I'm a veteran of appropriations battles on the Hill. Right. And I think what we need to understand is that the COVID relief spending has been and is going to continue to be massive. And it's ultimately going to be all borrowed and going is going to add perhaps $1 trillion or more to our collective uh, you know, national debt. That is, hor- that is horrible. It's tragic. But I, the point I want to make is this kind of, of pandemic and this kind of crisis is why fiscal responsibility uh, it would have been great if we had been somewhat more limited in our, as particularly disappointing for the Republicans um, and the president who have a majority uh, you know, in the Senate and, and the White House, the amount of spending and the amount of, of, of indebtedness that has occurred, you want to have the ability to incur debt when you have an emergency and you have no choice but to print money, which is what we face right now. But it's being exacerbated by the fact that both parties have been completely irresponsible when it comes to putting any reasonable limits. Fiscal responsibility has become a thing as a, a thing of the past. No one wants to say no to the American people right now. And 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 Kenton McCarthy, following up on what David just had to say, uh, the president is is one of the biggest cheerleaders uh, for getting more money because yep. I mean, at this moment he he almost yep. has an unlimited budget to ask for for things to do for the American people between now and election day. Well, he doesn't have the, he doesn't necessarily have the budget. He has no. a Federal Reserve that can print money. Right, it is the reserve currency globally. So we have that luxury. We don't have to live within our means. We can borrow from the future. So the, how do you the feel about problem, that? I'm As a conservative, because the, the the Federal Reserve has become the financier of virtually every aspect of our economy. But at the same time, they're doing what. Uh, Edvard Lukovac wrote about in 94 about the inevitable rise of fascism. Now, fascism, good or bad, forget Mussolini, means the government uses corporations to pick and choose winners. You've got a list of corporate entities or industries that are getting 
bailed out by the Federal Reserve with future tax dollars. You can argue about it, whether it's good or bad or whether it's stimulus, but that's the situation we're going to have post-COVID-19. Is there anyone that's going to stand up and say no at this point, David Masiotra? Well, I mean, say no to what? Say no uh, to more money. Let's keep having every couple of weeks. We're going to have a new stimulus package to help some entity who feels they didn't get a piece, a big enough piece, uh, in what's already been passed. In other words, well, instead of just saying that there's going to be, uh, you know, uh, you know, fifty billion dollars for small business, they're going to break the small businesses up. How much is going to go to restaurants? How much is going to go to bowling alleys? How much is going to go to, uh, you know, Major League Baseball or football? But I would argue that's the wrong framework through which to look at this issue because as compared to other developed countries, we already have a more uh, frugal or stringent response. I mean, other countries have adopted UBI programs over the next three to four months. We're giving individual Americans one check. Many Americans will go through that money within a week or two. Again, because of the devastation. I haven't even gotten my check yet. Right. I haven't even gotten my check. I haven't gotten mine either. So anybody so, on anybody so on the I line right now got their check? You get your check? Yeah. Kenton got his check. No. All right. Well, so we're well here's, here's, an, here's another point, uh, the two Davids and Bruce. We talk about what happens this summer if this thing slows down and we nip it at the bud and let's say let's say we tally 60k deaths okay that that's someone's gonna have a conversation that says dude was that worth destroying an economy breaking systems breaking industries almost for good my second question or my second concern is if we do see a spike in Kemp's governor Kemp's Georgia are we going to go back to this shutting down again and destroy the economy further, ruin lives further? I, I don't think that's the lesson that should be taken. I think the lesson that should be taken is go where the science and the data uh, guide you. And if what happens in Georgia is a modest recovery with no notable uptick in cases or deaths, that's going to tell us something. And if there is, God forbid, an uptick in deaths and, and cases in Georgia, that's going to tell Georgia that they need to scale back and retrench a little bit. By the and, way, and the, world, the world is watching. Always... The world is watching Georgia. We're running out of time, folks. The world is watching Georgia. Uh, obviously, the United States is. Next week, uh, our, we will have a special guest from Georgia, uh, Bill Nigat from uh, Georgia Public uh, Television. He will be here as one of our guests next week. And when we come back after this break, as we say farewell to our guests in hour number one, we'll be talking about the problem of hunger in America. If you think you know a lot about it. Stand by. You'll learn a lot more. I'm Bruce Dumont from Evanston. What is hope? Hope to me was just that he would get to come home. Thanks, Bruce. I had no idea Thank how you, hard Bruce. it would be once he got back. I wish she'd stop drinking so much. She thinks it's helping, but it's not. I hope she sees that soon. I act like I don't care if he comes to my games. But I hope he does. I used to hope he'd find happiness again. Now I hope our marriage makes it. I hope Grandpa will get help. He thinks it's too late, but it's not. With everything that he's going through, I hope he sees a counselor. 
I just want my brother back. I hoped he'd get help. Stop hoping things would get better on their own. He told me to stop asking. I didn't. Then one day he asked for a ride. Hope is knowing there are other families just like yours, that the veterans they love got help and recovered. Go to maketheconnection.net and turn hope into action. Matt always knew he wanted to be a doctor. That's why he makes the most of every day. To study before breakfast. To work hard. To do whatever was necessary to achieve his goal. He found an answer in the military. If you have a passion, a vision for your future in any field, todaysmilitary.com can be your path to a fulfilling career. You have a calling. We have an answer. Find your way at todaysmilitary.com. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV, we're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support for victories great and small. My victory was proving that a disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog and new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win, we all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Standing up for what's right. Helping out when things go wrong. Seeking the truth and speaking our minds. Not just making records, but breaking them. Leading the way behind the camera, beyond the runway, and on the silver screen. Not just making our mark, but making a difference. Now that's a job for a Girl Scout. Girl Scouts, preparing girls for a lifetime of leadership. We continue with our number two of Beyond the Beltway and... Uh, with almost 27 million people now uh, applying for uh, unemployment, obviously putting food on the table uh, for themselves and their families is a continuing problem uh, facing the country. And joining us now is uh, Abby Liebman. Uh, she joins us from California. Uh, she is the head of an organization called Mazon, and that's a Jewish response to hunger. She spent most of her adult life working in this field. And uh, Abby, thank you very much for joining us on Beyond the Beltway. Thank you very much for having me. I'd like to begin by asking, uh, most of your work is is w- with the federal government, and I want to talk mm-hmm. about the federal response and how states and individual organizations deal with hunger. But mm-hmm. how does the federal government define hunger? So really, when the federal government discusses hunger in America, it's really talking about food insecurity, which sounds fairly wonky. But when you think about what it actually means, which is that a family does not know where its next meal is coming from, or a parent has to skip a meal in order for the children to have enough food. Mm -hmm. You can get a sense that what that means is that this family is insecure about its nutrition resources, where and how it is going to locate enough food to feed themselves and their family members. Um, So that the federal government is really much more concerned with the notion that people are 
having lives that are unstable because they cannot find adequate food, more so than the idea that we're hungry, um, because hunger describes a condition that many of us have experienced, right. but we are secure enough to be able to satiate it. So if if you are uh, without a job at the moment, you've yes. got two or three kids, you're trying to feed them and, mm-hmm. uh, and a husband and or a, a wife. Uh, where, where do they go now? I mean, if they need something like right now, mm-hmm. how many federal resources are out there throughout the country where they could go and, and get the necessary, uh, you know, items, uh, that, uh, that, that feed the table, fill so the table. Our government has a remarkable nutrition safety net, which is how we refer to all of the programs that work in synergy to provide adequate resources to those who qualify for them. And interestingly, when you make some distinction between the federal and the state governments, actually federal and state governments have to work very closely together in order to make certain that this system works the way it is intended. Now, the federal government's primary flagship program in all of this is SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, which formerly was called Food Stamps. And those benefits are available to those who qualify for them, and you have to keep qualifying for them. They are also um, governed in large measure by what states seek permission to do from the federal government to expand the availability or the amount of those resources. So again, you see the state and federal government working very closely together. But SNAP is a resource that anyone who finds themselves in a circumstance where they no longer have an income, they do not have the prospect of an income in the short term, near future, can apply for these benefits and should be applying for these benefits. Now, what is the? what are some of the... Uh, uh, a criteria you need to to pass before you get your SNAP card. And we should mention, just to make sure I understood what you just said, uh, mm-hmm. since obviously uh, understanding nomenclature is important uh, in the mm-hmm. 21st century, uh, the concept food stamps, that's passe. That's not a term used correct. anymore? That is correct, because they're no longer stamps. It's okay. an EBT card, okay. an electronic benefit, like a debit card. Okay. Um, and again, uh, it, so... Uh, does does money get automatically put on that uh, mm-hmm. each month by 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 the government entity? It does. Once you qualify and you receive your card, yes, the money is just automatically loaded onto it at the end of every month. For the how do you how do you qualify? Computer. Mostly, it's about financial um, resources. Mm-hmm. So both issues about income, which now for people who are unemployed, they will qualify based on income. There's also asset tests. Now there are governors who are seeking waivers of some of these tests and these criteria so that the system is open more to those who might not otherwise have qualified because at this time we see that people have few options Mm. in order to either seek employment and we don't want them to deplete all of their assets just to feed their family. Right. Now do, uh, does does each individual state have their own state program, and and how is that compared with the federal program? So the federal program is administered by the states, so it's the same program. Okay. It's just that each state has certain um, criteria that it works with in order for people to not only qualify, but for how they get the benefits and the systems that they use for those. A lot of times this is passed down to the counties and people apply through their county Mm -hmm. that 
and there are variations both in the amount of benefits that are available. Some states actually supplement the benefits that the federal government provides, but there's also ways in which, again, states can seek waivers of the what the basic mm-hmm. program is that the federal government provides in order to enhance it in their state. In previous years, was there a stigma to being on on food stamps, and is that has that subsided? Okay. So I would say in previous moments, there was a stigma. I'm not so sure it has subsided at all. Okay. I think that for many people who would think nothing of saying, like, I paid my taxes, I qualify for Social Security, as soon as I'm av- it's available, I'm going to get on Medicare, they somehow balk at the idea of seeking food resources. Now, this program isn't one that everybody naturally is going to access, but in a time like this, Issues about stigma, barriers that people erect for their whatever that's coming from their own sensibilities about who they are in a community or how they've managed for themselves need to go by the wayside because this is a program to which they are entitled to get access and they really must. Now, yours is destroy your organization, Mazon, is described as a Jewish response to hunger. <laughs> right. How does that differ from? A Southern Baptist response to hunger. <laughs> it probably doesn't, um, but Mazon's a Jewish response to hunger, um, meaning that Jewish values and traditions inform the way in which we approach our work. Mm-hmm. That because we are very conscious of what you just alluded to, the fact that people should be able to access help when they are vulnerable in dignity and without judgment. And that comes from the teachings of the Torah. And we believe very firmly in that, that we are not in a position to judge others. We are in a position only to help them. And that is something that we must do. And again, our tradition teaches us that communities are responsible for those that live in them. And since our community is the United States, our United States government is responsible for its community. Now, when when you have a SNAP card, uh, you say that that is uh, the criteria is reviewed periodically. It has been. How so often does that happen? It can happen monthly in states. Um, can happen every three months in some states. But for all intents and purposes, most governors have sought a waiver so that they no longer have to recertify people. So are you limited automatically? Are you hmm? limited to what you can buy with your SNAP card? Very much so. It has to be food. It's not even all food. You can't buy alcohol. Can't buy cigarettes can't buy diapers, can't buy paper towels, can't buy it has, or napkins. It has to be food, um, which is, is fairly broadly defined. Um, you know, okay. candy's food. I want to talk more about that when we continue. We're talking with uh, uh, Abby Liebman, and she's with a group called Mazan, and they are based in uh, California. And uh, we will continue. If you have questions, 1-800-723-8289. A few years ago, Steve Faircow's lungs were failing. I don't think I had more than a couple weeks to live. That's when Steve received a lung transplant made possible by an organ donor. Now Steve can do things he never imagined, like climbing 94 floors to the top of a skyscraper. I never knew that breathing could feel this good. It's an incredible gift. What could you make possible as an organ, eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. (laughs) 
Welcome to Stumont Back. We continue with Beyond the Beltway, and uh, Abby Liebman joins us from uh, Los Angeles, where she heads a group called Mazone. And uh, uh, a couple of practical questions about uh, this SNAP program, because in addition to the SNAP program, which again is a federal program, it's been around for, for quite some time. It's not food stamps anymore, folks. It's called the SNAP card, uh, and there's limitations to what you can buy. You can't get beer and, and cigarettes and stuff that uh, and you can't even get toilet paper though. That's that maybe is yeah. should be reviewed at the moment. Uh, <laughs> but um, people hear about food banks, and there are literally hundreds of food banks all over the United States. Yes. Are they tied with this federal program in any way, or is that all uh, nonprofits? So the the food banks are all a separate nonprofit um, part of the anti hunger infrastructure in this country. So. You have the, the charitable response to hunger, which actually used to be called the emergency response to hunger. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's in large measure because food banks don't have the infrastructure or the resources to feed the 40 million Americans who were food insecure the day before the pandemic started. Right, right. And there are now, what, over 25 million people who are newly unemployed, right. which means that we're looking at 60 million people. And there is no charitable system in the world that has the capacity to meet that need. So food banks provide essential, immediate resources to people while they're qualifying for SNAP and the applications being processed. Or sadly, the last week of the month, when your SNAP benefits have been used and you don't get more for another week and you don't have any groceries. So the benefit from SNAP isn't designed to really provide you with a full access to all of the food that you need, it's meant to supplement that which you already have. Does the SNAP card, uh, does does that get recalibrated on the first of the month or is it is it staggered for uh, different uh, people in different regions? Mid- it's midnight on the last day of the month. Midnight so, on the last day of the month. Yeah. So at 12.01 um, okay. a.m., that's when people's benefit card, card is full. Okay. Yeah. Now, again, getting back to... Uh, uh, the coordination uh, between uh, how widespread is it that if, if you are in need of these services, is the awareness of the emergency aspect of the food bank, is that something that, that people just generally know about it if they're at the lower rung and they're, they're at wit's end? I don't know because the way the system really works in what we consider the, the normal times here without a pandemic is that a food bank is more like a warehouse. And it has clients, and those clients are food pantries. It doesn't usually see families or individuals. It's providing food to pantries in a network that is established. And people go to the pantry to access their groceries from there. So now what we see is that food bank system responding with tremendous alacrity to what they could see was a system they had to pivot. And that's what you look for in a crisis, right? Institutions to pivot and meet a real need. So now people can, in fact, drive up to the food bank to get groceries. Can they get enough? Probably not. Can they keep going? Not clear. And they get perishable food? That is probably a no, because most food banks and food pantries don't have the refrigeration and the transport facilities that make them capable of both transporting housing, and then distributing perishable food. So, so there's we see that challenges. We then, we then see some of the stories of, uh, uh, you know, farmers in the, in the dairy land having to destroy milk because they can't process it 
and get it to uh, millions of people that may may need it. And I think uh, we're going through that now with uh, uh, some of the chicken plants around the country uh, that their mm-hmm. their chickens are are literally about to be no good. They're going to become rancid if yes. because they can't be processed processed in time. Right. So this, if nothing else, the pandemic has revealed two things: both the gaps and challenges with uh, within the food system chain in the United States between farmers and producers and those who process and then how you deliver food and the where consumers access it. So there's all kinds of glitches in that system of which we'd never been that aware until we saw it all sort of happen here in front of our eyes. And then you have a system in which we see that our food nutrition safety net is not as solid as it should be. And on the one hand, we have governors who are seeking all kinds of innovative ways to get the federal government to be more responsive and make SNAP more accessible to the Congress that has increased the benefit that people can get. And then the administration, which seems to be on the one hand saying that they are in support of many of these changes and on the other is still working to try to limit the number of people who get SNAP. Most specifically, the requirement that if you're an able-bodied adult without dependents, you can only get SNAP for three months unless you find work. Mm -hmm. And in this time, you cannot find work. So that rule got put on hold. And it will it be will it is the goal now then to maybe link that with uh, with unemployment uh, compensation? Well, the goal is to get that rule to be ruled um, unlawful um, so that it never goes into effect. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, there are links within states about how you qualify for SNAP that some states expedite this process by linking it to other benefits that people seek, mm-hmm. um, usually subsidies for things like um, uh, electricity, heating, that kind of thing. So in very places where it's very cold or places where it's very hot. Mm-hmm. When those systems are taxed and people can't afford the high cost of energy, mm-hmm. they get supplements from their states and states sometimes link that to SNAP. With, with the uh, the SNAP card, is there any, because I know you, you've also been interested for much of your life with nutrition. So is there is there anything tied in that? Is there any educational program uh, that is intended for those who are users of a SNAP program? to understand the nutritional value of some things they get, because you didn't say candy bars were off, were off limit, right? No, no they're not. Okay. So some, are, someone yeah. conceivably could go in and get, fill it up with, with candy bars and Pringles and, 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 you know, soda pop. And, uh, well, so I mean, we could say that any of us could do that, but most of no, us don't think of that as a nutritional way to feed ourselves right. or our families. So people right. don't, but there are in fact programs that help with nutrition education more, Bruce, really, because it's such a limited amount of money and there are so few things that you can afford with it to help people figure out how to make a nutritious meal out of items that are not as nutritious as the rest of us can usually afford to buy. How you much can- is, what is, what is the base snap card entry what 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 do they so get the average the average benefit for a family of 4 in the united states is $465 a month now right now they're getting the maximum benefit um and which is something that congress did 
Um, so that they're getting a little bit over $600 a month. Now, if you break it down, it's really only a few dollars um, a day um, for each person. Um, And it's very hard to eat a nutrition-rich, balanced diet on what amounts to $4 um, for every meal. Um, It's a very, $4 a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, Where, which is terrible. What what role, if any, do do the grocery stores and grocery chains in the United mm-hmm. States either play in the program you're talking about, which is the federal mm-hmm. SNAP program, or mm-hmm. or those that uh, uh, that participate in in local food pantries? So a lot of um, a lot of grocers are very generous about donating product to. Uh, their local food pantries or local food banks. And they do a lot of that donating actually at the national level where you have large corporate manufacturers of food who donate through Feeding America. So they distribute that through their network. But SNAP is a great economic driver because in the same way that any individual, when you spend money in the grocery store, you are driving that economy, both the economy locally, the economy for those that are producing this food, Anyone who's using SNAP is also buying food. Is, so is, fe- any- is Feeding mm-hmm. America the largest uh, nonprofit? I know there are many, but uh, mm-hmm. are, are they the largest uh, that exists out now? Well, they're certainly the largest anti-hunger charity in um, the United States, and their right. budget's about uh, $2 billion, I think. So yeah. they're they're very large. Yes. Right. And, and I, they, know, I know they today serve is a- that... Uh, if you go to, uh, I've seen the commercials, if you go to Jersey Mike's today, 20% of yeah. their profits today are going to be going to uh, Feeding America, mm-hmm. which is, a, I'm sure there's right. other companies that have done similar things over the over the years. Right. So Feeding America serves, as I said, this vital purpose. These, these mm-hmm. food banks and their food pantries are really essential to help people meet the needs that they have at the end of the month when SNAP runs out right. or before they get SNAP or if they can't qualify for SNAP. The are the major, is, are is the major th- food companies, uh, de- mm-hmm. uh, uh, Abby, are the mm-hmm. major food companies also regular contributors to to food banks around the United mm-hmm. States with overruns or things that are about to uh, mm-hmm. to uh, expire? To the best of my knowledge, yes. I mean, Mazona is not a food bank, and right. we mm-hmm. don't um, necessarily you know, participate in systems that are governing those, but we are, you know, of course we are aware of that. And that's generally, I think what happens. Yes. What can listeners and viewers to the program, uh, if they want to help or learn more about what you do and they hopefully after this interview have a better understanding of, uh, the food safety net in America, what, what should they do? Where do they go? So there's two things they can do. They can go to our website at mazon.org. Um, so mazon.org. Um, the other thing to do is there's been very little attention paid to food and nutrition in the COVID response. And some happened very early on in the first response bill, but it didn't do enough and it didn't affect enough Americans. And so you need more, you need more money in the, in the next uh, package. We're out of time at this particular point. Abby Liebman, thank you very much, not only for being with us, but for the work you do. I'm Bruce Dumont. This is Dr. Phil. The new coronavirus called COVID-19 is spreading in China and beyond. While CDC is working to stop the spread of the virus, 
we can all play a role in stopping this deadly disease. The CDC Foundation is a nonprofit organization supporting emergency response efforts in the United States and around the world. To get updates and learn how to protect friends and loved ones, find out how to help by going to cdcfoundation.org. Chris Domine is a husband, father, an athlete, even an Iron Man. But 10 years ago, Chris's kidneys were failing. The doctor said, if you don't get a kidney transplant, you are going to die. Chris received a second chance, made possible by an organ donor. Your well-being changes from loss of hope to better times ahead. What could you make possible as an organ, eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Bruce Dumont back in Evanston, Illinois, and uh, for the last uh, several weeks, there's been many stories, uh, initially broke out of Chicago, is the significant disparity in COVID-19 deaths uh, between uh, the general population and uh, the African-American communities and uh, color uh, people of color. And so uh, we're now joined by uh, uh, Dr. Sylvia Gates uh, Carlisle. She's a medical doctor, and she joins us from uh, uh, her home in California. Dr. Gates, uh, uh, Dr. Carlisle, rather, uh, nice to have you with us on Beyond the Beltway. I'd like to begin by by hearing from you, what is the single biggest thing we should know about improving uh, the disparity between uh, deaths of blacks and browns with the general population? What do we need to know? Hello, I'm not uh, hearing uh, Dr. Gates. Is she there? Dr. Gates, uh, mm-hmm. we're going to speak yeah. up. Are you there? Uh, Dr. Gates, yeah. are you there? Dr. Carlisle, are you there? Okay, uh, are you there? Dr. Carlisle, are you there? I cannot hear Dr. Carlisle. Okay. While we're doing while we're doing that, uh, the the issue we talked about this briefly last week. Uh, obviously, uh, part of the issue is uh, there are uh, the underlying uh, conditions that exist in many of the patients who pass away uh, from COVID nineteen. Uh, they are diabetes, their hypertension, uh, their heart disease. Uh, those are the big three that uh, you've been hearing a great deal about. In many cases. Uh, these are prevalent in Af- the African-American community around the United States, have been for many, many years. And then there's the issue of whether or not, just culturally speaking, uh, how, many, uh, how many medical facilities and how many doctors are working in the inner cities uh, of, of the United States where uh, African-Americans could, could go and, uh, and seek help uh, if they were looking for help. So I'm, I'm looking at a screen. I'm seeing uh, Dr. Carlisle nod. That means she can hear me. Now, the big question is, Dr. Carlisle, speak to see if we can hear you. Can you hear me now? We can. Okay. Good. Here's my question. Glad we got together. Uh, kind of straighten yourself up a little bit. You're a little, you're a little off camera. There you go. Uh, my question to you is, uh, what do we need to know uh, about the general health of the African-American community if we want to understand the disparity that exists? We have two kinds of disparities affecting the African-American community. We have disparities in health 
and disparities in health care. If we look at disparities in health care, many cities and municipalities have noted that Black people are getting tested less frequently than others in the population. And this is problematic because we're not learning the lessons from other communities with COVID, where diabetics, people with heart disease, have worse outcomes. So we have a system that cannot adapt to the information we do know. We is also one, know- is one is one thing that that doctors and the science uh, scientists would agree is that within the African American community, hypertension, diabetes, and to a lesser extent, heart-related issues, there there is systemic problem within the African American community. With obesity, with obesity and uh, 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 diabetes being probably the worst. There are the incidence of hypertension in the black community is 20 percent higher than the general community for all ages. And when you get to middle age individuals, hypertension is twice as prevalent as in black communities as white communities. So we know hypertension exists. Hypertension contributes to di- contributes to cardiovascular disease, and so those two things are linked. And then we have the increased incidence of obesity in all Americans and in the Black community, and the effect of stress and stress hormones on insulin resistance and diabetes. So we have many confounders. Now the the hypertension aspect of it, uh, what what could be done to zero in? on reducing uh, risk or the risk of hypertension? Are there, are there treatments that can be used? Are there behavioral differences? How do you tackle, you know, one of the major uh, feeders of death? Hypertension is more common in African-Americans than Africans. So there's something going on in the United States that cannot be attributed to the genetic material that, that Africans share with African-Americans. So there's something in the U.S. environment that we need to address. But pending our ability to address the milieu of the United States, we know where Black people are. We know who's likely to get hypertension. So we need to direct resources to addressing hypertension, particularly when it has multiple factors of death and morbidity, even without COVID. What about uh, heredity? Is is this if we were to go back a hundred years from now, uh, would we still would we say then if there was research at that time, would we say that that was a problem within the, the African American community then? It's unknown what we can say in the past, but we know that African Americans are different from Africans. Mm-hmm. We and our African brothers share a significantly similar genetic material, but yet African-Americans have twice as much hypertension as Africans. So we can't put everything on genetics. There are things about environment, the environment people live in, that contribute to illness and the inability to be healthy. We talked in the last segment, I don't know whether you heard it or not, we were talking about uh, food safety and and how the, the the food safety net works in the United States with the SNAP program and also the various food banks. Um, obviously, uh, I think a lot of people know 
that in African-American communities around the United States, there, there's not enough variety of grocery stores as there are in, in Caucasian neighborhoods. So in those neighborhoods, what may pop up is a mom and pop or a 7-Eleven or a franchise of some kind, which isn't known for the high quality of nutritional food that's there. Is that part of the problem or is that is that a fair analysis of, of what the obesity problem might be? Well, association is not causation because Americans in general are becoming obese. Yes. And so we have the issue of food deserts. And yes, there are poor communities and ethnic communities that have food deserts, but all of America is not a food desert. What is the reason that Americans in general are becoming more obese? Those factors are probably the same in ethnic and lower income communities. So we need to look at some things that are universal across the board in the United States and also the unique needs of particular uh, constituents. And so if we cure obesity in all of America, there will probably be advantages to ethnic communities and poorer communities. But we haven't figured that out yet either. When I was growing up, uh, I had a health class. Believe it or not, I had a health class. Do they even teach health in public schools in Los Angeles where you live? Well, we know that there has been a loss of physical education. When I went to school, everyone had PE and recess to burn off calories. When you and I went to school, people had better quality food to eat, fewer additives and uh, healthier food. So those are contributors that we all need to work on. Mm -hmm. But then we also have the problems that specifically affect ethnic communities and lower lower income communities. You mentioned uh, earlier that there has been a uh, a uh, less testing in the African American communities than in the Caucasian communities. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Right now, we know that we don't have a lot of ethnic data on testing in areas where we do have ethnic data on testing: California, Philadelphia, and some other areas. It's very unfortunate that. African-American communities are getting tested less. In some national data data analysis of claims that are being paid, African patients, African-American patients are being tested less. So we have a problem that we need to start thinking about how do we address solutions? How do we proactively respond to incomplete data? Now, your organization, we should mention, you are president of the Association of uh, Black Women Physicians, uh, and and congratulations on your presidency. Uh, What is the goal of of your organization? Well, the Association of Black Women Physicians has been in existence for 38 years. We're proud to provide scholarship support, and we've raised three quarters of a million dollars to send African-American women to medical school. We also believe in providing mentorship for medical students, pre-meds, residents, and uh, physicians in practice. We also have community outreach. So right now we're encouraging the community to get COVID testing. We're available at uh, Charles Drew University, University of California at Los Angeles, and other sites within greater Los Angeles. And uh if, if people are interested in knowing more about your organization, where do they go? 
Uh, people can find us at blackwomenphysicians.org. And we're really trying to get out the word to the community about testing, testing, testing. Okay. Well, that's uh, that seems to be the key uh, for all communities. But again, uh, uh, Dr. Sylvia Gates, uh, Carlisle has joined us. Dr. Carlisle, thank you very much, very much uh, for being with us on Beyond the Beltway. When we come back, we're going to be talking about landlord-tenant relations. Are you a landlord? Are you a tenant? Are you paying your rent? Or are you skipping it? Back shortly. Every year, millions of Americans use opioids to manage pain. Pain can be unrelenting, overwhelming, and all-consuming. So why do so many of us try to manage pain only from the palm of our hands? Doctor-prescribed opioids are appropriate in some cases, but they just mask the pain. And reliance on opioids has led to the worst drug crisis in American history. That's why the CDC recommends safer alternatives, like physical therapy, to manage pain. Physical therapists treat pain through movement, hands-on care, and patient education. No warning labels required. And by increasing physical activity, you can also reduce your risk of other chronic diseases. Pain is personal, but treating pain takes teamwork. When it comes to your health, you have a choice. Choose more movement and better health. Choose physical therapy. Visit MoveForwardPT.com to find a physical therapist in your area. This message is brought to you by the American Physical Therapy Association. Mr. back. And thanks very much for joining us tonight, Beyond the Beltway, from coast to coast, from Evanston, Illinois. Uh, we joined you this evening, and uh, we now head back uh, to California, where we're going to be joined by Lee Wang. Uh, Lee Wang is a Chinese immigrant. He came to the United States many, many years ago, uh, spent his early years in Memphis, Tennessee, then fell in love with Chicago when he attended the University of Chicago. And in 2008, he got a physics degree, a Bachelor of Physics from the U of C and uh, Lee, however, uh, he also fell in love with the concept of real estate. So he decided, Hey, you know, does the world really need another physicist? And you decided to go into real estate. I don't know whether your parents were happy about that, but uh, as someone who's in the real estate business now, tell us a little bit about, I mean, you, you own basically small uh, properties, uh, some here in Chicago and some in California. Is that correct? Um, Hi, Bruce. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's good to be with you. Um, Yes, I have um, three properties in Chicago. Uh, I bought my first condo in 2009 uptown Mm -hmm. when it was still kind of sketchy at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, and then following that year, um, I bought a couple more investment properties on the south side of Chicago, one in West Pullman and one in Roseland. Mm -hmm. Now, at this moment, uh, there's probably a lot of uh, people who rent, who are watching or listening tonight. And there's a lot of people who probably are the landlords. So put your landlord hat on and say, uh, uh, are all your tenants paying their bills now? Uh, yes and no. Um, so the property that I have on the South side is um, a subsidized property uh, right now, and it's being um, you know, government sponsored. So um, a Christian uh, community center, uh, basically sends out a check every month. So uh, the government sponsored rent is still being paid every month. So mm-hmm. that's going. Um, my condo that I'm renting out on the north side in Uptown uh, is a working class uh, family. Um, the uh, One of the renters is a bartender. So um, 
he totally got laid off and maybe was working six hours a week, um, just the minimal uh, to keep something going. But uh, and their uh, bar is applying for the PPP so that they can get paid. And the other uh, tenant is a real estate agent. So she's still making some uh, money right now. And I'm getting partial rent um, from that property. You have described their current situation, but uh, as, a, as a landlord, uh, unless you paid cash, are, are you paying a mortgage uh, on, on, on these properties? Uh, I, I owe those properties free and clear, uh, right now. Um, the, I actually, before the lockdown, I actually refinanced uh, the South side property because I wanted to take out to invest in, um, other portfolios of buildings. Okay. And I'm just very fortunate to have timed it that way. I totally didn't see this coming. But uh, I know a lot of my friends have been trying to get money out of their homes, and now it's a lot tougher uh, in this climate. So as of the moment, you don't have a gun to your head uh, uh, from a bank asking you to, to, to pay your, your mortgage. You're, you're in a very unique situation. Um, well, because I just got a loan on my investment property, I do have to pay that mortgage. Okay, you pay that back. <laughs> so okay. I just got a mortgage. Yes. Okay. Um, now the on next the uh, I, I, miss, I, one, I, I, miss, I misunderstood one. that. But now, how, how strong a, a landlord are you going to be? I mean, how many months can you go if you've got one or possibly uh, two uh, uh, tenants who are not paying uh, full rent? Yes. So the Southside property, that one is being paid pretty consistently by the okay. Christian Community Center. So okay. that one, a check comes in every month. Okay, that's because I'm not that, too worried about that's, that. Right, that's a that's a federal oh. government uh, check that's coming to you on a regular basis because of the, uh, the type of housing. yeah. I'm not sure where where the check is coming from, but I'm getting a check. So it it's coming from a Christian organization. They could be getting funding from the federal okay. or the state. I'm not sure where they are. We have Bonnie listening to us uh, this evening in Crown Point, Indiana. She wants to join this part of the discussion. Go ahead, Bonnie. Oh, thanks for having me. So, um, I'm a commercial real estate lender on the Northwest side, uh-huh. and um, my company has been um, providing mortgages to property owners in Lakeview and Lincoln Park since 1893. Uh-huh. And we are um, we're very well rated with the federal government. Um, my clients are real estate investors. It's not home loans. It's, right. It's commer. It's commer. It's um, Oh, strip malls, 10 flats, mixed-use properties. Right. And the stories that I'm hearing from customers, people are calling me, and they're saying, I have 15 units, and all of my tenants got together, and they came to me and said, we're not paying our rent. Well, the thing of it is, is there's a lot of, of, of ridiculous information that's being put out on, you know, by these tenants' rights organizations saying, well, you don't have to pay your rent. No, the county is not enforcing eviction orders, but you still have to pay your rent. Mm -hmm. And what I tell these people is I say, at some point, if they don't pay you what they owe you, you can legally go after them when this is all over. I say, start the paper trail, you know, get yourself an attorney. And, you know, what you want to push for is not only all the monies that are due to you contractually, 
but also legal fees that you're incurring. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 you know, I tell, I tell my customers, I say, but you know, gonna, I say... But, Bonnie, I, it's, gonna, I, it's, it's going to be a battle. I mean, you've got to be... I mean, if you're a landlord... Oh, in this, it is. It and, is. and, again, I, I, I understand and, and know some things about, you know, real estate in California. I mean, it's almost impossible to evict, to evict anybody in the state of California. I mean, literally, it's almost impossible. So, again, uh, this is going to be one of these stories that we're going to continue to evolve. Bonnie, I want to thank you very much for your call. We ran a little tight on time. Lee, thank you very much as well. Uh, Again, uh, we ran a little bit tight on this segment. But, again, uh, the subject is not going to go away. So we'll uh, catch up uh, with you in a couple of months. And hopefully your tenants by then are, are paying the rent. I'm Bruce Dumont. I want to thank Andrew Marshall for his assistance in the production of this program. Uh, One guest next week is going to talk about the great state of Georgia and how they're surviving the first week of Governor Brian Kemp's uh, new way of life in Georgia. We'll find out how it's going. Bill Nygut of Georgia Public Radio will be one of my guests next week. Another, we've got a great panel as well, and I thank you very much for being with us. I'm Bruce Dumont. Good night from Evanston. What is hope? Hope to me was just that he would get to come home. I had no idea how hard it would be once he got back. I wish she'd stop drinking so much. She thinks it's helping, but...